scripture today comes from Mark 6, verse 14 to 29. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted him killed. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. Because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought, it back on, brought his head back on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Uh, this summer we've been looking at Mark's gospel. Um, Mark is uh, the recollection of Peter, his experience of Jesus, what he saw Jesus do and say. And he has described for us and shown us how Jesus began his ministry, how he began by getting baptized, just as he calls on his followers to be baptized, how he was tempted, how he began to teach. He then shows a different way of thinking about who God is in the world. He announces God's kingdom and shows through his miracles and his healing that it's going to be a place where there is no more suffering. He shows his authority over nature by calming a storm. He goes outside of Israel to the land of the Gentiles to show that he's not just king of the Jews. And we saw last Sunday, Jesus began to send his disciples, his followers, out two by two to preach in his name using his authority to heal, to drive out demons, to witness who Jesus is. And that's where this story here picks up, verse 14. King Herod heard about this. King Herod heard about Jesus' disciples going out two by two. They must have made a big impact on such a small country. Uh, in northern Israel, you can walk across the country in a, in a day. 
Going out two by two, they must have seemed like they were everywhere. Herod, by the way, was uh, a ruler installed by Rome. He depended on Rome for his power. He was not a beloved king of Israel. And uh, so he was a nervous king. He worried about what the people thought about him. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. Who is Jesus? Herod and all of Israel is trying to figure him out. And you notice they look to Israel's history. They look to try to place him in the context of how God has spoken to Israel through Elijah, through the prophets. And, shockingly, here, we discover John the Baptist has been killed. When Herod heard, heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. We didn't even know he was imprisoned, and yet here he is, it turns out, dead. Mark's account has left all of this out. And why would Herod think that Jesus was the resurrected John? Because he is uneasy. As we'll see, there are parallels between what happens between Herod and John and things that had happened in Israel's history. And so, in John and in Jesus, Herod is haunted. The echoes of history and God at work in Israel are beginning to haunt him. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now we know a lot about Herod. Um, the Jewish historian Herod, uh, Josephus wrote a history of the Jewish people. And he writes a whole section on Herod, the complications of his family, his scheming, his power struggles with Rome. And so we, we know a lot about this story. What Herod had done with Herodias was not lawful according to Jewish law. He had taken his brother Philip's wife while he was still alive and made Herodias his own wife. Uh, he had also almost started a war over his marriage and he almost ruptured with Rome over all of this. He was scandalous not only to the Jewish people but to the Roman people. He was a complicated man a scheming man, and he's got a very complicated story. And of course, John the Baptist, we learn here, has challenged, you know, John is the prophet of God, challenging Israel and his leaders. John the Baptist challenged this relationship, challenged Herodias. And so for her, this is a threat to her position, to her children's future and inheritance. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted him ki to kill him. But she was not able to, 
because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. The parallel here is with the story in the Old Testament of King Ahab, who takes a wife, Jezebel, who is a foreigner, a worshiper of Baal, the foreign god to whom people um, sacrifice children, tries to make Baal worship Israel's worship, and proceeds to try to kill all of God's prophets. Jezebel killed hundreds. Until Elijah challenges her and challenges Ahab. And so the parallel here is between the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, sent by God to challenge the king, and John the Baptist, sent by God to challenge Herod and his wife Herodias. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, although the Bible doesn't name her, we know from Josephus and his account, his history, that uh, the daughter was called Salome, a famous name. The king asked, said to the girl, Salome, ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried to the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Goodness, what a tragic, sordid tale. What to make of such a story? This story, by the way, has had great influence beyond the church and beyond Christianity. Uh, it inspired many artists down through the ages. Uh, one particular famous painter, Gustave Moreau, portrayed uh, Salome as this sort of exotic dancer. You know, the Bible itself doesn't say there's anything particularly sexual about what she did. Oscar Wilde turned that into a play, Salome, and introduced the idea of the dance of the seven veils which many people think was the first striptease. And so this whole story has been sexualized and turned not into a mother's grab of power, Herodias, but in, into the dance of Salome, seducing a king. I can't resist just giving you one report of the picture of Salome. This was a French uh, author who scandalized by what he was saying, how the French particularly loved the story of Salome. No longer was Salome merely the dancing girl. 
who extorts a cry of lust and concupiscence from an old man by the lavicious contortions of her body, who breaks the will and masters the mind of a king by the spectacle of her quivering bosoms, heaving belly and tossing thighs. She was now revealed, in a sense, as the symbolic incarnation of world-old vice, the goddess of immortal hysteria, the curse of beauty, supreme above all other beauties, by the cataleptic spasm that stirs her flesh and steals her muscles, a monstrous beast of the apocalypse, indifferent, irresponsible, insensible, poisoning. Goodness, eh? Salome. So a pretty straightforward sermon this week. Uh, women are tricky and wicked. Don't trust them, especially when they start dancing. Christians beware. But there's something missing. Where is Jesus in all this? Why is this story in the Bible? I mean, after all, this is a gospel. Good news. Why didn't Jesus intervene? Why didn't he say something? Just as John the Baptist had said something to Herod and Herodias, why didn't Jesus? Why didn't he visit John in jail? Why would someone, John the Baptist, who'd been so faithful, who'd been Jesus' herald, the man who baptized him, why would he just die so in such a sordid way all alone? Well, first thing, well, there are two things. But first, Jesus came as a savior, not as a judge. I have come into the world as a light. This is Jesus. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus did not show up to punish bad people. And it's just as well. As Paul puts it, Jews and Gentiles alike are, un are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There's a temptation when we read this story to think of ourselves on Jesus' side and the disciples. And Herod is the bad guy. But the genuine scandal of the gospel is, by God's standards, we are all like Herod. There are no good guys. There is no one righteous, not one. And therefore, by God's standard, every one of us deserves punishment. And if Jesus had shown up in the world to punish and condemn, every one of us would be lost. There is a genuine scandal to the Christian gospel. By God's standards, we're all lost. We are all deservedly damned to hell, rotten to the core. Herod is just more notorious and well-known. Jesus did not come to judge other people. He did not come to punish 
He not, did not come to leave a re, lead a revolution. He came as a savior. Jesus, meek and mild, born in a manger. And that's the good news. Notice the kind of kingdom Jesus brings into the world. After all, this is what he is doing. He is initiating his kingdom. Herod's kingdom, remember Herod is the king of the Jews, is based on violence and coercion. He's supported by Roman legions. His position is maintained by force, constant scheming, fear, imprisonment, or death. And in that, his kingdom was like every other kingdom in the world, like every other power, authority, and ruler. Contrast that with Jesus' kingdom, the one that he is initiating. Jesus had no army, no power, no wealth to attract or coerce people's attention, no position. He was a lowly carpenter. When he traveled, he traveled on foot. When he sends out his followers, we saw that last week, no weapons, no money, no food, or even a change of clothes. They are going to be vulnerable, and they're going to have to depend on the kindness of strangers. Why did Peter put this story in his account? Because Peter was a simple fisherman. Life was hard. He, was, he knew that making a living of fickle nature, going out on the lake, fighting weather and uh, waves, the fickleness of fish, that was a tough way to make a living. And when he came back to the shore, Herod's tax men would have been waiting for their share of the catch. He knew what it was like to be a Jew in the kingdom of Herod, king of the Jews. It was hard, it was brutish, and it was short. And if you argued, a soldier would show up. And then he meets Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't judge, who doesn't condemn, does not lay a guilt trip on anybody. He is a king. He demonstrates his authority and power. But he serves, he heals, he teaches. There's no violence, there's no fighting, no call to arms or revolution. Nobody is ever rejected. Nobody is ever thrown out. There is no threat of punishment. And that melted Peter's heart. Peter is smitten by this new kingdom, this new way of living. He is seduced. He is transformed. He will become the rock on which Christ builds his church. You know, we live in an age where everybody right now, it seems, in America, is judging and threatening everybody else. Condemning, shouting, trying to blame somebody else for the problems of the world. It's chaos. What is the solution. The solution is grace. The solution is to live out the kingdom of grace that we are offered by God. You know, a few years ago, 
Pope Francis was asked how he would respond, how he would respond to a gay person coming into his church. And he said, who am I to judge? Pope, Catholicism typically seen as authoritarian, coercive, something that makes you guilty, condemning. And the Pope said, who am I to judge? And the world was amazed. A few years ago, Charles Robert entered an Amish church and killed five children and himself. How did the Amish res respond? Their first response was to go to his family to try to take care of them. One of the Amish men held Robert's father for an hour while he sobbed. And Robert's mother wrote a letter to the Amish church. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you have given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. The world was amazed. You know, right now, there is no political solution in America because people just speak past each other. They can't talk to each other. There's a growing sense of chaos and hatred, discord and division. Who has the resources to address that? Christians. You know, we celebrated earlier the peace that passes understanding, the peace that we have with each other because we've been reconciled by Christ. The peace that allows us to love each other despite the fact that we remain sinful people. That is the resource that the world needs right now. A church that does not seek to punish, condemn, that doesn't try to lay a guilt trip on people, that doesn't point to others and say, you're the problem, you're the enemy. A church that has a humility to say, no, I am the problem. The sin is mine. And if it wasn't for my savior, I would be lost. Jesus' kingdom brings into the world this space, this new way of being and living, a way of forgiving each other because we are forgiven, a humility because we recognize that we're not saved because we're good people. We're saved because Christ is good. A kingdom of forgiveness and grace. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. It is getting darker out there. The world needs people who are part of this new kingdom. People who can love and not judge. You know, I was recently at a meeting of the pastors in New York and we were talking about this. And one of the pastors challenged us all. We we're about 100 people in the room. If it is true, we are at peace with each other and with God, we should have the courage to make peace in the world. We should seek out people that we disagree with and invite them for a cup of coffee and listen to them and not lecture to them. Try to understand them. 
show them this grace. Who am I to judge? Because we have been shown that grace. Because we have been invited into a kingdom of grace. No one and no other institution and no other group of people have the resources that we do. This should be our business in the world. Because the world needs us. People are at each other's throats. There is no peace. But Christ offers us peace with each other, peace from God, and the resources to be generous in peace towards others around us. That's what the Christian gospel is all about. That is what it means to say, Jesus is my Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that through Christ you have invited us in, not judged us, not threatened us, but said through him, I love you. Lord, help us to grow in his likeness. Help us to grow in generosity of spirit, in forgiveness, in welcoming. Give us the courage to reach beyond ourselves and the people like us to those who are not like us, even to those who hate us. Lord, we ask for your spirit and your power to minister to your broken world. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?